Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. The promise of heaven has a powerful effect on us as we go about our daily lives. In this episode, Pastor Andrew explores this promise and how we can know its truth. Last week, under the heading, Heaven Above, Hell Below, I noted the traditional concepts of heaven and hell have often given the idea that heaven was up and hell was down, that somehow or other heaven was above in the sky and hell was down under the earth. Such thoughts have received disparagement by those claiming that science has driven such naive and trite concepts out the door, untrue physically. Jesus and the biblical writers are certainly not as naive as claimed, nor were the concepts of heaven and hell as trite has been made out. Recent scholars such as Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright have also disparaged what they termed naive ideas that many Christians have concerning going to heaven when they die. Such scholars attack what they claim as bad interpretations of scripture passages, but at the same time dismiss the passages themselves. N.T. Wright in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, reconsidering the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion, critiques and calls into question what he claims is many Christians' naive concept of going to heaven. This includes that God has saved us from sin through Jesus' death on the cross so we could go to heaven when we die. Wright's challenge is that we need to reconsider what Jesus did on the cross based on an understanding of God's saving plan being the creation of a new heaven and a new earth with resurrection bodies for the redeemed people. Although I agree that God has a plan, because of the cross and Jesus' resurrection, I find a number of issues with Wright's critique and proposal. One element revolves around the use of the word revolution. But revolution against whom? Rome? The secular powers? The demonic powers? Or Satan? That is not clear. Who then is to fight this revolution? Who is on God's team? And how are they going to be prepared? If we dilute the power of the cross on an individual level, 
then how are they going to be prepared and empowered to achieve his plan? But more important is the seeming dismissal of heaven or our expectation of heaven as naive along with many of the scriptures that clearly relate to heaven and us. Along with this is the elements of Wright's proposal for a new heaven and a new earth. This phrase is only used four times in scriptures. In Isaiah 65 verse 17 and 66 verse 22, in 2 Peter 3.13 and the book of Revelation in chapter 21 verse 1. In some sense, these references are obscure. Are the new heaven and earth entirely new or a replenishment or fixing up of the existing heaven and earth? It seems to me that writers talking about a replenishment of the existing earth. If that is the case, then what does he think the current heaven refers to? I'm not sure that that's clear either. Wright chooses what are misinterpretations of some passages of scriptures and treats them as if they are common beliefs by past and current Christians. He then dismisses the very scriptures upon which the misinterpretations have been based. I call this misinterpreting misinterpretations. My concerns about this arose afresh out of our recent reading from Hebrews that spoke about a heavenly country. Write notes in regards to this concept. That vision of a non-bodily ultimate heaven is a direct legacy of Plato and of those like the philosopher and biographer Plutarch, a younger contemporary of St. Paul, who interpreted Plato for his own day. It is Plutarch, not the New Testament, despite what one hears, and he emphasises that as if, what a foolish thought, despite what one hears who suggested that humans in the present life are exiled from their true home in heaven. That vision of the future and ultimate glory that is left behind the present world of space, time and matter sets the context for what is basically a paganized vision of how one might attain such a future. Plutarch is not a Christian writer. So what is his misinterpretation here, which Wright believes have been taken up by Christians? Is it the non-bodily state of heaven or the exiled state here of our life on earth? Wright believes both. And so do I. But not for the same reasons. Writers questioning the non-bodily issue because he is implying a physical resurrection body. After all, 
a new earth is going to require a new physical body, isn't it? But is that what the references from Isaiah to Peter and the book of Revelation indicate? As I noted, that is obscure. However, I question the non-bodily issue because Paul tells us clearly that we will put on a new resurrection body. We're getting a new body. But it's a spiritual body, not a physical one. Paul is really clear on this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Whereas Jesus rose with a physical body, we will be given a new spiritual resurrection bodies. Why? Because we're entering a new dimension called heaven. Paul's argument is that we need a new and appropriate body for that dimension. This sense of entering a new dimension, rather than simply going physically up for heaven or down for hell, confirms that our expectation of heaven is not naive, at least from a New Testament perspective. It also means that Jesus and the other New Testament writers were also not naive. They well understood the limits of this physical concept of heaven above and hell below. The proof of their cosmology, that is their understanding of the universe and its entities, was far more limited than ours. But they still understood the extent of that universe and the entities it contained. The extensive nature of the stars was recognised from the time of Abraham and Moses. And we still note the names of such constellations as Pilates and Orion, whose recognition goes back to the time of Job. The second issue here relates to our exile here in this current world, on this troubled planet, in these physical bodies. Plutarch and some Christians down through the ages have seen the body we inhabit as inherently evil and that we struggle to be freed from its restrictions. This sees the world in which we live, its activities and events, as futile and meaningless. That is not a biblical viewpoint, either Jewish in the Old Testament nor Christian in the New Testament. The Bible is consistent that this planet was made for us, for our benefit. And science even tells us that. We can be at home 
on this planet because we're built to relate to it. We're built to use it. We're built to control it. We're inspired to create in its midst things that are quite unbelievable. We have been built for this planet and our bodies have been built for this planet. So they're not intrinsically evil in themselves. And it's not a biblical idea that we need to get rid of them as quickly as we can. Not that activities and events of this world are not sometimes futile and meaningless. But since the cross, as Wright points out, and I agree, the cross of Jesus changed this world absolutely. It also changed what we, as God's team, are here to do. God's plan took a radical new direction and when we respond to what God did through Jesus on the cross for us, our life takes on a new meaning and purpose. So let's look at our heavenly country. Wright tells us that the concept of a heavenly home is not a New Testament concept. However, our reading from the letter of Hebrews chapter 11 notes this. And he's been outlining the faith walk of Old Testament characters like Abraham, etc. And he says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This concept of a heavenly country is a conclusion noted in the midst of a chapter on faith. Rather, the chapter on faith. Wright tells us that we need to move out of our naivety and grow in faith and love. However, the very people who had held to faith, no matter how impossible it seemed, no matter how often it seemed not to be realized, continued to walk in this faith despite the seeming futility of what they believed. They did this because they knew that that country that they left and the one in which they were walking through was not their home. Their home was a heavenly country that was still coming. So as the Hebrew writer mentions Abraham, let's have a look at him. 
God promised Abraham two things. He stood him on a mountain and told him to look to the north, the east, the west, and the south. And as far as he could see, it would be his and his descendants. Not only this, but it would be through his wife Sarah, who was both barren and 90 years of age. But if the provision of the sun was seemingly impossible, then possession of a land that is just over one and a half times larger than Brisbane by this small tribe of less than 70 persons was even more impossible. So think about it. If God said to us this morning, Brisbane is yours. It's all yours. The whole lot. I've given you the deed over it. But there's a bunch of people out there who just might not like the idea. It might be ours technically, but in reality it seems the size of who we are totally impossible for us to possess. And that's the situation that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob found themselves. Abraham saw the sun in his lifetime. And the land over 400 years later came to his descendants. So how do you hold faith in such circumstances? But he did it and he became known as the father of faith for the three major religions of the world today. Some 3.9 billion people. I don't think there's anything futile about what Abraham achieved with his faith. He impacted this planet and he continues to impact it. He didn't ignore it and he didn't want to leave it. He was aware of a purpose of God and a plan of God that he was a part of. I'm sure he had no idea how big a part of it was. But he definitely was in God's plan. Are we naive to expect heaven? In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving them. He was doing this for two reasons. One, so he could send the Holy Spirit to them. And two, that he could go and prepare a mansion or house for them, a home in heaven, where he will be waiting to greet them. He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. Now we can move to encompass something of right's proposition. The cross 
change the world. Whether it is right to call it a revolution or not will require a study of what our current culture understands by revolution. However, God in Jesus on the cross changed the world in which we live and the way in which Christians need to operate in this world. The New Testament writers understood that God had a plan for this planet that came into focus with the incarnation of Jesus, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. This is seen in their expectation of heaven and their desire to go and be there with Jesus. But the plan of God for this planet was so important They chose to stay and work here in this world for as long as they could. Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith but not by sight. But we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive compensation for his deeds done in his body in accordance with what he's done, whether good or bad. Paul is convinced of two things here. One, when he died, he would go and be with the Lord in heaven. And two, he needed to remain here on this planet as long as he could because of the importance of God's work and the fulfilment of God's Wright goes on to note that according to the book of Revelation Jesus died in order to make us not rescued non-entities but restored human beings with a vocation to play a vital part in God's purposes for the world. Certainly, Paul did not see us as non-entities. But he did see us as persons needing to be rescued. We were in deep trouble. We were encompassed and overwhelmed by three forces. The demonic powers of evil and darkness, our sin and rebellion against God, and the condemnation by the law. By nailing Jesus to the cross, God dealt a fatal blow to each and every one of those forces. He defeated and humiliated the principalities and powers of evil and darkness. He broke the power of sin in our lives and he delivered us from the burden of the law. 
I think Wright uses the phrase rescued non-entities to describe persons waiting to go to heaven with no godly purpose in this world in the meantime. And if that is the case, then his criticism have some validity. If we're just waiting to go to heaven and not doing anything in God's plan in the here and now, then right is right in what he says. However, without that rescue and the security the expectation of heaven, we could not possibly be restored humans equipped and ready to carry out God's purposes in this world, especially our own vital part in his plan. So our commission is, First, to expect heaven. I have a feeling that that is vital to what we actually can achieve in this world. In some sense, it will empower us in ways that we cannot understand. And then, we are called to engage heaven so we can change this planet, that we can change earth. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would help us to expect heaven, to have that assurance that you give to us through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Enable us from that expectation to be empowered for your work in the here and now, to fulfill your purpose and plan for this planet, especially our part in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.